Well, brothers and sisters, I am no handyman. I wish I was. But I do know that you need the right tools for the job. So what would happen if you tried to put on a roof with screwdrivers and a crowbar? I, I put on, I helped Matt put on his roof, by the way. So, I mean, I, you know, I did something. Um, it just wouldn't work if you tried to put on a roof with a crowbar and screwdrivers. I guess you could drive nails in with a crowbar, but it's going to be ugly. It's going to leak. It's not going to last. It's just not going to work. How about if you tried to build a deck without a level? Well, I mean, I guess you could pull it off, but it's going to be, it's going to be wonky, most likely, and sway this way. It's going to lean this way or that. It's just, it's just a fact that you need the right tools to do the job well. And the same is true when it comes to building the church. If we try to build the church, and of course by the church, I don't mean our building, I mean our people. If we try to build the church with the wrong tools, things are not going to go well. Sure, at first glance, all may seem well. Sure, for a time, we may be a lighthouse for the truth, a hospital for the sick, a training center for gospel laborers. But in the end, shoddy construction will not last, especially in a harsh environment. Shoddy construction is going to fail to the detriment and wounding of all who belong to her. And so what are the right tools? Well, I'm going to give it away up front. And I'm going to tell you it's the message of the cross. It turns out we don't need all sorts of different tools. It turns out that we need one tool, the multi-use tool of the gospel. It is the only thing that will build true. And it is the only thing that will build to last. Would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 18. 1 Corinthians 3, 18. So the context is the Corinthians are building with the wrong tools. And since Paul began this, this one long section that actually runs from 110 all the way to 421, he's been setting them straight really just about one thing. What you need is not the wisdom of this world. What you need is the wisdom of God bound up in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pick up with me in verse 18, if you would. Let no one deceive himself. If any among among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written... He catches the wise in their craftiness, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. This section's bottom line is a call not to boast in men. 
That's, that's where he goes. Verse 21. So, on the basis of what I've said, so let no one boast in men. You recall that what's going on in Corinth is factionalism. Big word. It's, it's just a condition in which a group is split into smaller groups with differing and opposing opinions. 111 says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. Or I follow Cephas. 3.3 For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a merely human way? For when one of you says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? So I think Brad just said it quite well last week. The Corinthians are doing a slightly more grown-up version of my dad can beat up your dad when it comes to their leader of choice. This is why last week Paul labored to say, guys, the church is like a field and Apollos and I are merely sowers scattering seed. We're just sowing. It's God that gives the increase. We're nothing special. But I think we need to ask, what's underneath this factionalism? What's, what's leading the Corinthians to act like this? It's false wisdom. Doesn't Paul talk about wisdom over and over in this first section of the book? I had 118 through 216 read for you this morning because I want it fresh on your minds. Instruction on wisdom just pervades the whole section, right? It's because, it's because Paul is combating false wisdom. Culturally, in the Greco-Roman world at this time, the most successful and popular people were those who excelled at rhetoric and philosophy. Now, that's a long way from who's popular in our day, right? Social media influencers and, and Hollywood stars. But, but follow me. These folks were called sophists, and they were sharp. They were knowledgeable. They were witty. They were stylish. They could debate passionately and winsomely and convincingly on, on all sorts of topics, politics, law, religion, business the most successful of them had devoted followers who would pay in exchange for discipleship. Devoted followers would often clash with devoted followers of another. And importantly, in this environment, the way a teacher taught was at least as important as what a teacher taught. So substance and style mattered incredibly. And in fact, if one's style was superior to another, even if the substance wasn't, you might win the day. This is why the Corinthians are lining up behind Paul or Apollos or Peter. Because they're convinced that one of them is more passionate or winsome than the other. 
This is why the Corinthians are clashing and quarreling with one another over who's following who. This is why Paul specifically says, I don't preach with lofty speech or wisdom because he doesn't want them to value style over substance. This is why Paul has been talking about wisdom over and over and over because he needs to reshape how they think to bring it in line with the gospel. Here's what happens in every age. Please don't forget it. The church takes on the thinking of the world. This was the cultural era of the day. So this is what the Corinthians were influenced by. And this is why Paul writes in verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone thinks that he is wise in this age. Let him become a fool. That he may become wise. For the wisdom of the world is folly with God. You know what this is? This is Paul's spiritual detox program for the Corinthians. They have become drunk on the spirit of the age. And Paul, because he loves them, is trying to get them to dry out. And the first step is that they have got to see that God's wisdom is upside down to the world. If anyone thinks that he is wise, and they do, they think they're wise, let him become a fool, a fool in the eyes of the world. That he may become wise in the eyes of God, for the wisdom of the world is folly with God. This is the other side of the coin from what he shared earlier. So in 118. Paul said, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. So in other words, according to man, from his perspective, the word of the cross is foolish. But now he says, according to God, from his perspective, the wisdom of man is foolish. And the point is, God's wisdom is just upside down from the world. So the world says it's style over substance, but God says it's substance over style. So the world says a leader be able to hold a crowd and, and God says a leader's got a hold to the gospel. So the world says your significance is determined by the size of your following and God says your significance is determined by your faithfulness to the gospel. And so ministry success according to worldly wisdom and ministry success according to God's wisdom are opposites. And to get underneath that It makes total sense that he would say that because God's wisdom is summed up in the cross which is totally opposite to the thinking of the world. The cross says life comes through death. The cross says greatness is selfless sacrifice. The cross says give away your money to become rich. The cross says deny yourself in exchange for true joy. The cross says lay down your life now to gain your life later. Everything about the cross is opposite the world's perspective, right? And the Bible has always taught this. Verse 19 says, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they're futile. Paul quotes from Job 5 and Psalm, 70, uh, Psalm 94 just to show that this is nothing new. 
God has always worked contrary to the wisdom of the age. His ways are not our ways, and his ways are better for us than our ways. His ways are for our good. And so, verse 21, let no one boast in men. Have you ever just been talking to your kids and you just say, enough. Enough with your factious following of certain leaders. Enough with your quarreling and strife. Enough with your foolishness. You are acting like the world. Enough. I said something a minute ago, and it probably flew right over your head because it's something I say quite often, and so... Like what happens with your kids, when you say something quite often, it, it goes over them. Maybe it went over you. I said this. I said, his ways are better than our ways because his ways are for our good. I didn't just say that to say that. I said that because that's where Paul goes next. Do you know why the Corinthians are giving into this factionalism? It's because they think it's in their best interest. They want to make sure that they're attached to the right guy because surely that will be for their good. Paul says, no, for all things are yours. They think they're going to gain by attaching themselves to the best guy. Paul says, you've already got everything. All things are yours. Now, what the heck does that mean? I'm glad you asked. Let's just tease it out. Let's look at what he says to understand. What are all things? Well, look at verse 22. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or death or life or the present or the future, all are yours. So he starts with Paul and Apollos and Cephas. Why does he start with them? Well, because they're the guys that the Corinthians are saying, I'm of him and I'm of him and I'm of him. Paul says... (laughs) turns it on his head. He says, that's backwards. You don't belong to any one leader. Actually, every leader belongs to you, the church. They're the sowers God's using to bless the field. They're the builders God's using to bless the building. You don't have to line up behind one because they're all a cross-bought, God-given gift to you already. Do you see how silly their actions are? They're trying to get the benefit from claiming one. God says you've already got them all. And not only that, through the cross, you've really got all things. The world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours. These are ultimate realities. They're ultimate realities. They're things that are just, they're beyond our grasp. They're beyond our reach to to control. And yet through the cross, God has turned each one of them such that they ultimately serve us. The world, despite its opposition to God and the people of God, world belongs to God and he will one day remake it and we will rule over it with his son. Life 
It is now something we do not have to desperately cling to. It is the sphere in which we serve our God in anticipation of the greater life to come. Death, that horrible last enemy, it doesn't have to be the last word. It isn't the last word because our Savior conquered it and through him so too will we. The present, despite how intimidating and seemingly unending and an ominous the present may be, it will not undo us because God is sovereign over it and he is transforming us through it. And finally, the future. It is nothing to be feared but embraced because we know the end of the story, amen? God is over all and we, his people, are over all with him and all of this through Christ belongs to us because we belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God and this is what the cross gives you. I wish we were an excitable church and somebody would be like, yeah! Because that's what I want to say, yeah! That's incredible. All of this belongs to us through union with Jesus Christ. All things are yours. Now remember why Paul is saying this in context. It's because the Corinthians are building the church with the logic of the world instead of the logic of the cross. Paul's point is, that's not good for you. You think it leads to blessing, but it actually robs you of blessing. Blessing comes through the cross. That's Paul's point to them in their day where they were taken up with rhetoric and logic and they were taken up with some of the things that I wish we were taken up with. We're taken up with TikTok. But he says blessing comes not through thinking about ministry through the world's lens. Blessing comes through thinking about ministry through the cross. So let's just pause for a second and ask, what does the wisdom of the world say today about how to build the church? On leadership. The logic of the world tells us that what we need is a dynamic and charismatic and capable leader. But the logic of the cross says that we need a man whose character is shaped by the cross and whose message is centered on the cross. On preaching, the logic of the world says that I need to speak to finding fulfillment, a sense of purpose, personal peace, life coach stuff. But the logic of the cross says I need to direct you towards God. Every message I preach must not center on us. It must center on God, who he is. Our rebellion against him and the wrath we deserve. It must focus on God. It must focus on Christ, his righteous life, his substitutionary death, his resurrection, ascension, reign, and future rule. And it must focus on Christ, God, and how we are to respond a lifetime of repentance and faith. The wisdom of the cross says that is what I must speak to you about week in and week out. On ministry focus, 
The logic of the world says that if you want to be relevant, you need to focus on social action. The issues in our world that matter. And, and insert whatever the issues those are for you. They're going to differ widely. But the logic of the cross says that relevance isn't what we're looking for. And in fact, the issues that matter in our world today aren't the most important issue. God is the most important issue. And so every ministry must direct sinners to him, to see him for who he is, to see themselves for who they are, and to lead people to do business with him and to continue to do business with him through the cross. I think about expectations for members. The logic of the cross, excuse me, the logic of the world would say, you know what? Don't expect much from anybody and and don't ask for much. But the logic of the cross says that just as Christ gave himself for you, you are to give yourself for his people, the church. The cross says expect much from one another, not little. On and on we could go, but here's the lesson. True blessing comes as we let the logic of the cross permeate all that we do as a church. Brothers and sisters, let us renew ourselves this morning to a commitment that the cross is what we will build our church and what will bless our church. All things are ours through the cross. Why wouldn't we boast in it? Why wouldn't we build our church upon it so as to receive a great blessing? Amen? So what has Paul said so far? He has said, boast in the cross. Build the church, not through boasting in men, but through boasting in the cross. And now he says, we need to be faithful to the cross. Boast in the cross, point one. Be faithful to the cross, point two. Pick up in chapter four, verse one. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So in verse 1 he says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. We should just ask ourselves, what are, what are teachers in the church? What are they? Gifted communicators? TED talk givers? Motivational speakers? Excellent CEOs that have a command of leadership principles and organizational structure. Teachers certainly do need to be able to teach, according to 1 Timothy and Titus. And teachers and leaders would certainly be helped by having a grasp of basic leadership principles. But to be able to teach and to pastor does not entail dynamic, impressive speakers or leadership skills. In fact, Paul defines teachers here as... We are stewards and we are servants. 
We are stewards and we are servants. What is a steward? What is a servant? Well, a steward and a servant are those who are employed by someone and entrusted with something. Servants and stewards are those who are employed by someone and entrusted with something. So Joseph was a steward of Potiphar, right? He was employed by him. He was entrusted with him with the management of his household. Teachers are employed by God and entrusted by God with the, minist- with the mysteries of God. Now, what are the mysteries of God? Well, it's, it's, it's not what you think. Mysteries aren't something that's totally unknowable, and we are like the Dumbledores of the Christian world who have special knowledge and can open it up at times. A mystery is something that is hidden but now revealed, and chiefly the mystery of God is the cross of Jesus Christ. The mysteries of God are bound up in the cross of Jesus Christ. That which was hidden in the Old Testament yet to be revealed. Be sure the foundations were laid and through every single piece of the Old Testament, God was showing us what was coming. And then when Jesus came, here it all is. The Old Testament building until the revealing of Jesus Christ and him crucified and that this is the way through whom he would save sinners and reconcile a people to himself. So what that means is that above all, teachers are called to steward the gospel, the message of the cross. We're to keep it. We're to preach it. We're to defend it. We're to flesh it out in the life of the church. We're to insist on its centrality in every Way, consider Paul's words to Timothy. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells in you, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Consider Jude's words. Contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Consider Paul's words with what he said in chapter 2, verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So teachers are what? Stewards of the gospel which means our standard is faithfulness, not popularity. Verse 2, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Brothers and sisters, on the day of judgment, teachers like me are going to be judged based upon our faithfulness to the message of the cross. That is so helpful for me to keep in mind. And as you, brothers and sisters, teach and instruct in foundations... And in youth, that is so helpful for you to keep in mind. You will be judged based upon your faithfulness to minister the gospel to our dear little ones. And it is also helpful for me to keep in mind verse 3. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself. But I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. A couple of important things. Number one, Paul says, It is a very small thing that I should be judged by you 
or any human court. Now we get a little insight here into the reality that the Corinthians really were looking down on Paul. You know why? Because he came to them preaching a rather simple message. Jesus Christ and him crucified. He came to them, as he said earlier, in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and he decided not to use lofty speech or words of wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And since they had imbibed the thinking of the world, they were beginning to look down on Paul. Oh, Paul. Simple old Paul. I think they would have called him a fundamentalist. Okay? But Paul says... With me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm accountable to God. I'm not ultimately accountable to you. Brothers and sisters, that's good for me to keep in mind too and pray that I would keep that in mind. Pray that I would never be fearful of what you think about me based upon what I say. And I praise God that I have the freedom I know in your hearts. What you want me to do is give to you the word. I am so grateful for that. Not every pastor has that blessing. I do. But pray that I would keep that in mind. And I'd never want to tickle ears, as Paul warns Timothy against, but that I would want to preach the word to you in all robustness so as to make it both sing and sting. Pray for me in that. I'm accountable to God, not to you. That's what Paul says. Says, Paul also says he, he doesn't judge himself. Now, what does that mean? It means that Paul knows he's accountable to God, and it just means that he knows that just because he doesn't see any unfaithfulness in his ministry, that doesn't ultimately matter. What matters is God's estimation of him, and God will make it clear. God will make it clear. Verse 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. The message here to the Corinthians is don't judge before the time. Now, be clear, this doesn't mean don't ever judge teachers at all, okay? Just like Matthew's judge not lest you be judged, probably the favorite verse of all people who don't know the Bible, okay? Matthew's verse when he says judge not lest you be judged doesn't mean don't ever judge. In fact, later on in the chapter, there's judgment that takes place. In fact, later on in chapter 5, the very next chapter, Paul is going to instruct the Corinthians to make a judgment against a sinner in church who is not repenting. And if you read the rest of the New Testament, you'll find that you should be judging me according to my faithfulness to preach the gospel. So it doesn't mean don't ever judge teachers. What it means is don't judge unrighteously. Don't judge prematurely. Don't judge, most of all, don't judge through the world's wisdom. That's really what it means. And then I want you to note the positive end. This is shocking. At the end of the text, Paul does not say that on the last day when God evaluates, and he's speaking most primarily here to teachers, I'm going to tease this out to us in a minute. But he's speaking mostly, primarily, firstly to teachers. On the last day when God 
who discloses things that are in darkness and, and understands everyone, man's motivation. On that day, on the great day of judgment, he does not say, and each one will be judged. There's not a negative hint to this. There's a positive hint to this. He says, each one will receive his commendation from God. Paul anticipates being rewarded and he anticipates the reward that is incumbent to all faithful ministers of the gospel. He doesn't end on a negative note. He ends on a positive note that the judgment of God for faithful ministers is going to result in blessing and glory and honor and reward for them. There is a reward for labor for the gospel that is true of leaders, but it is true also of Christians as a whole. And so I want us to think for just a moment about the need for all of us. We talked in the first point about wanting to be boasting in the cross of Jesus Christ and that being what is best for our church and to build our church upon. We also should be faithful to the cross, brothers and sisters. If teachers, if I, if Brad, if the elders, if Sunday school teachers, if our role is to be stewards of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is that not also what all of us should be doing? Shouldn't we all be stewards of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our lives, representing the truths of the gospel well with both our lips and our actions? Yes, We want to be faithful stewards of the gospel as a church, not just from the top, but from the bottom. We want for all of us to faithfully steward the gospel, and we trust that we will be rewarded by God based upon our faithfulness to minister his gospel. Amen? And so, what will make for a healthy church? Boasting in the cross? And being faithful to the cross. Boasting in the cross. And being faithful to the cross. The church needs one multi-tool to be built, to flourish. And it's the gospel that both saves and sanctifies. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your mercy and grace to us in Jesus Christ. And we ask, Father, for your continued mercy and grace. We ask that we would never grow bored of the precious gospel. We ask that we would treasure it, that we would love it, that we would be transformed by it, and that we would proclaim it until our dying day. In Jesus' name, amen.